Nick. Oh, hi. How you doing, Steve? I'm all right. How are you? Yeah, I'm good, man. So we've got a, some, something different on the science show. It's a special one. We've got some more guests. Who have we got? So we've only ever had one other guest where we did Swapcast. This is a new, new, but we're doing it again. We've got another Swapcast. I enjoyed that one last time, and I want to do more of them. So this is a good thing. Yeah, so we, after we kind of, uh, so if you remember, we had a few, um, uh, we nominated ourselves for an award we didn't win, right? But one of the people that did win the award. Oh, did he? Yeah, is a guy called uh, Stuart Higgins. He who must runs, be really good. Yeah, he is really good. Oh. He wasn't in the science category, more though. More professional than He's us. way more professional than <laughs> us. But anyway, we met up with him um, a couple of weeks ago yeah. um, in Imperial College. Um, and we had a little chat about his podcast, which is called uh, Scientist Not the Science. No, wait, what's it called? It's called Scientist Not, Not the, the Science. science. Yeah, so he's uh, he runs a podcast where basically he just interviews scientists but doesn't actually talk about science. He talks about what it's like to be a scientist. Yeah. Um, and we met up with him in a little chat, didn't we? We did. So we did one that was um, kind of a science shed type thing where we just had a little bit of a chat about random things. And we did one as a as one of his, as a Swapcast. So he actually interviewed us, which was, was quite, quite unnerving, disturbing. Because <laughs> we just turn up and just like insult each other. But he's, he's like... He sort of drilled down into he, our relationship. He really, and sort of, into, drove into a, our hearts. Drove a strange wedge between us. Tried to, <laughs> it's never been the same since. I know. <laughs> it was like going to marriage counselling or something. Yeah. What I imagine it to be. So you're about to listen to, to that podcast. Um, and then what we'll do as well is on, we'll put a link um, to the uh, edition of his podcast which which is yeah, you, you can hear us get definitely quite emotionally destroyed <laughs> i bet you can't wait <laughs> anyway right. should we have a chat with him let's do it Hello, Steve. Nick, how are you? Oh, not bad. How are you? I'm really hot. It's I'm all hot and bothered. <laughs> it's a lovely day in uh, central London today. It's absolutely beautiful. Unfortunately, I'm all hot and sweaty because I was in a rush. You do look late. a bit hot and sweaty. I'll yeah. try not to get too excited. I had to like, run through the tube with a big heavy bag full of podcasting oh equipment. And a little old lady banged into me. Did you? Did she go? Did she go? She on the went floor? flying. Yeah, she thanks did. to the conservation momentum. <laughs> Any breakages? <laughs> no, she didn't Air fall ambulance? over, but she was definitely shocked when she walked into my bag and got spun around. I feel sorry for you, Steve, because you're always the person who ends up carrying the massive heavy bag. I know you don't. I would do you it, but you, te- you you're, you've got a masochist tendency, you see, and you tell me that you like carrying that. I do. Bag. I do quite like carrying some heavy kind of things. physical exercise because you spend all of your day just pushing a pen around. That's pretty much true. <laughs> anyway, Nick, we have a special guest. We in do. The shed today. I know it's great. It's only the second time we've ever had a guest in the shed. Is that right? I think so. We've had kind of sporadic, random, accidental guests, but we've never had a real, proper guest. No. That we're actually going to talk to, like a human being. <laughs> so we have Dr. Stuart Higgins from Imperial College. Hello. Hello. Nice to meet you guys. How are you? Also hot and sweaty. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's pretty miserable out there, and it's muggy and. Oh, I mean, it's lovely. I mean, for most people, would say it's a lovely day, but. For me, I prefer it when it's kind of, you know, 20... It's very English of you. I, yeah. enjoy, I, I don't mind being hot and sweaty, to be honest, if it's the, the sun's out. Do you uh, know, I kind of know... I feel like I know Stuart, Steve. You're kind of like, you're out of phase of each because other. Because we He's like a former Nick. He's like a former me, in or, some respects. Or, or Stuart's a future you. I'll explain <laughs> what... So, basically, at the moment, we're recording this in a big building called the Royal School of Mines, which is at Imperial College in the middle of London. Mm. Guess where I did my post-op, Steve? 
did you do your postdoc in uh, this this very building? This building, I've had meetings in this very room. Stuart now sits on the desk directly next to the one that I sat in for three wow. years doing my postdoc. So you feel kind of a, a kind of a kinship. Exactly, but I was there at the beginning, Steve. Right. I was like a pioneer. What do you think about that, Stuart? I'm just going to nod. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably wisest, yeah. But so is it good to be back? It's great. Yeah. It smells exactly the same it as it nostalgic. used to. It's taken me back. Just the odour of this room is, right. is flinging me back to kind of postdoctoral pain. <laughs> postdoctoral pain. <laughs> I know. I know. So I'm there already, and I'm ready for more pain in this podcast, Steve. As we kind of wander through a, a world of science with Stuart. Yeah. And, and I wish to point out, I had no idea that you were uh, formerly worked for the same boss as me when I contacted you. There you go. Isn't that it's serendipitous? Kind it's of the science world. shed has arrived like the TARDIS in, <laughs> in, the, in, the, in the lab of God, our, I can our almost, dreams. I can almost hear it coming. So, so why, are you, why, are you in the, why are you here? Why am I in the science yeah. shed? Who are you, Stuart, and what are you doing? Why, <laughs> why are you with us? Well, Nick, we've got an award winner amongst us. I know, congratulations! So, Stuart, so we're, just, we're just like, like you know, amateur podcasters. We're just we have an award-winning podcast. We're just trying us. to bathe in his reflected glory. That's exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> so Stuart, tell us about your podcast. Uh, so I make a podcast called Scientists Not the Science. In it, I talk to scientists. We don't talk about science. It's a very descriptive title. And how um, how did you come... That was quite a high-pitched squeak. I'll try that again. How, how did you come up with it? What was the uh, uh, thinking behind it? Um, love podcasts. Really love listening to podcasts. Yeah. Really got into um, the Comedians Comedian podcast, right. which is a comedian interviewing comedians. Can you see the pattern? Mm. And I kind of went, oh, I wonder if I talk to scientists. I wonder if they'd be interesting. And it turns out... Um, comedians are really good about talking really used to talking about themselves on stage scientists not so much <laughs> so a bit more of a challenge than I realised at the start well, they also can be quite weird people as well I find comedians or scientists both <laughs> well that was the I did an episode about this like the premise was basically are comedians the same as scientists it's basically kind of freelancers kind of pointing your own work in your own direction you have certain kind of things you want to do for your career progression so that was the kind of so what, idea so some, if, if people haven't listened to your podcast before what can they expect uh, kind of lots of interviews with people at every level, so not just you know kind of PhDs, postdocs, professors, yeah. also people connected to science. So the last episode was about, um, so one of the episodes was with uh, the journal editor from Nature Materials. That's so okay, what was it like being an editor? Was it like when you send rejections? Do people ever send nasty replies back? Do they get do they get nasty replies? Yeah, apparently. <laughs> yeah. Just go, like, Stop being mean. <laughs> yeah. It's a really good idea. <laughs> yeah, basically, all that kind of thing. Um, I can imagine like ninety percent of their time is probably dealing with that sort of thing. They reject ninety five percent or something, or ninety percent of all submissions. So well, yeah, most of the time, you say no. I haven't listened to that one yet. I'm gonna have to have I, a listen. I, I dabbled with your Robin Ince uh, one, but I haven't I haven't gone so far into. I had looked down, and you've actually interviewed two of my colleagues in the chemistry department. Oh, yeah. uh, was it Chris Hunter by any chance? Chris Hunter mm-hmm. and um, Sylvia. Yeah. Sylvia yeah, yeah. Which is, yeah. So I'm the third third chemist to, to grace the halls of wow. Stuart's podcast, maybe. Great. <laughs> yeah. So how do you generally find it then? The, when, when you're doing it, is it difficult to get stuff out of them or is it generally quite straightforward? It depends a bit on the person. So everyone's different. Yeah. Um, in general, once you've had a chance to warm up and chat for a little bit and people realise that you're also like a sane human being and everything's okay... Yeah. Then they kind of they'll talk to you a bit about stuff. That's nice. Do you ever try and winkle controversial information out of them? Because uh, sometimes, right, the world of science, 
can have interesting arguments and fights between scientists. And I suppose they'd be quite reticent about talking about that. But I wonder whether there's a good strategy for getting in there to the to the, the heart of the you know, those sorts of things. Don't Nick wants the dirt. <laughs> he wants <laughs> the <laughs> he wants to know, you know. <laughs> Usually, if you ask someone about the specifics of people they work with, they're generally uh, not keen to put that on on yeah. tape. Um, for, I don't know why. Um, <laughs> but if you can ask them about patterns of behaviour, so you can ask them about uh, great things. Ask them about things they've heard from from anecdotes, kind of from the field, oh, yeah, without yeah, specifics, yeah. Um, or also just kind of patterns of behaviour, how people behave yeah. in the lab. So a lot of my stuff, a lot of the podcasts, is about the culture of being a scientist. So mm. what does it actually mean? Um, what's the good? What's the bad? That kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, everyone should go and check it out. Yeah, definitely. Um, and what sorts of, like, I mean, you're talking to these people um, quite regularly. I mean, are there things that you find, like, really surprising ever? Or is it, is it... I mean, the anecdotes are the thing which I can imagine being quite interesting and meaty if they tell you about interesting things that they've come across. Yeah, a the, the couple of them where you talk to people and they, they kind of... You weren't planning something, so I, I spoke to a student who'd, who turned out they were in the... Higgs boson announcement lecture. They, you know, they, they were a summer student at the time. They got up at three in the morning. They had to queue up for hours. They managed to ram in the back of this lecture theatre. And so that's stuff you don't expect when you yeah. start talking to people. That's quite nice. Um, and yeah, those kind of stories are quite good fun. I think those sorts of things as well, because a lot of people hear that on the you know, you know, they were aware of things like the Higgs boson and it getting announced, and they see the press about it, but they don't really get that sort of inside track on it. So it's great in you know in your podcast that you're able to. to offer people that and sort of see that the scientist perspective because really we're just normal punters as well a lot of the time so that's kind of the hidden secret message of the show it's kind of you know actually when you start breaking things down actually there's a lot of stuff that's very normal to any kind of career path yeah. some stuff that's specific to science obviously um and so hopefully that's the reason why it's slightly more engaging because it's not just um you know it's not things that you're not going to experience in your own life even if you're a non-scientist listening to it you'll have recognized things like classic stuff like imposter syndrome um or various other issues that you know you will know from your own working Nick environment. Nick doesn't have any imposter syndrome. He thinks this is awesome. Isn't that right, Nick? Yeah, of course. <laughs> are, you, are, you a, are you a Dunning-Kruger fan? Didn't, didn't you know? <laughs> Do you know about Dunning-Kruger thing? Never heard. No. Dunning-Kruger is the opposite of imposter syndrome. It's where you, um, you think you you're, think awesome you're, you're really good and you're not. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's <laughs> like everybody. <laughs> that's what I've got. So... I've got a couple of things I want to talk to you about, Nick, and Stuart now. It's weird having two people to, to pitch to. <laughs> I should also say my background's a physicist, so I think we've got the full set now. Ah, congratulations. There we go. Oh, yeah, I'm a biologist, aren't I? Sometimes I forget that. <laughs> well, what do you see yourself as? What are you in your heart? I don't know. Do you know, we, we, we were sat around, uh, for quite a while, we sat around the, the coffee table before, um, and thought about the simplest question you can ask either a chemist, a biologist, or a physicist to identify, to self-identify them within that group, such that you can ask someone something very complicated, and you might know something. You might, as an undergraduate degree, as a as a biologist, you might do something that's the same as say a medic. But what's the question whereby someone can only answer that if they've got an undergraduate degree in biology? Okay, we worked it out in chemistry. Right. Which is no point asking neither of you two because neither of you two are chemists. <laughs> <laughs> ask it, ask it. Please. So the question is, what's the point group of water? Oh, I don't. Yeah, no idea. No. See, not a clue. See, but I guarantee if there was a chemist in this room. We could ask them, and they'd oh, know the so answer. Th- they'd have to be one for a biologist as so that's well. The co- yeah, but some some chemists probably wouldn't know no, that. They would all know that. All of them. Every chemist I've ever asked. Knows I'm going to test them that. Then. Try it. Try it out. Really? Yeah. And I'm so not. There's and if be I told you the answer, then you'd have the secret key oh <laughs> to ingratiate yourself well, with well, other I could chemists. Just Google it, Steve. <laughs> it's not hardly a secret key. <laughs> you won't remember it. 
Um, yeah, so you should think Hang on, hang on. Three. No. Oh. Two? There's a two in it. Yeah. Oh, 2.1? 2. 2.2. <laughs> no. 2. What's the point group? <laughs> <laughs> just Nick just randomly guessed oh, what's letters. the point? What's uh, the point? Uh, Very good. Uh, no, I can't think of one in biology. There might be... Um, How about physics, Jet? You know what I mean? No. It's quite a difficult question. It's quite interesting because on one hand, what you've got to do is think up something that, you know, is very specific to the physics course, but also there's something that may not have come across in, in others. So if someone did a degree, I don't know, nanotechnology or, or chemical physics, they wouldn't have come across that. So it's kind of some, some in that kind of came. So there's a, there's a course that you do as an undergraduate uh, chemist called Molecular Symmetry. Um, and in that, you learn about point groups and, and group theory. Uh, and part of that is learning about water. So... Uh, it's quite cool, actually. It's just from by looking at the shape of a molecule, you can determine information about the spectra. Um, and that's See, I haven't of... understood anything you've just said. Right, there's a... Yeah, okay. <laughs> that's because you're not a chemist, Nick. No, no change there. Anyway, so, yeah, you should think... So, have you got any, any anything off the top of your head for a biologist? For biologists, I think that with, number one, with biologists, yeah. they may... Are they a bit thicker than chemists and physicists? I, I, I said this before. I think, I think chemistry... on average, maybe... I, no, I don't think that's true. Okay, that's, a, that's a pretty bad stereotype. Yeah, right exactly. <laughs> well, I'm just throwing it out there. I'm hoping I, that someone I, will provide I evidence. I don't think that's true. I don't think that's true. Okay, great. I'm with you on that one. There's a lot. Of, there's a lot of snobbery I, around physics. That's the thing, though. A lot of kind of the ma- physics and mathsy kind mm. of subjects are, are given this kind of prestige that, you know, and, and failure. Over years, people have said, "Oh, what do you do?" I'm, I'm always going to say I'm a physicist. I don't do physics. I'm more an engineer. I do kind of yeah. engineering style of things. But there's a real kind of thing about saying you're a physicist. It gets people kind of like gives you unnecessary kind of kudos you don't deserve. I think physicists are the cleverest, and then chemists, and then biologists. And I think that bias goes all the way back to school. Because when you're doing like A levels, if you think about what the hardest A level is, a lot of people, the average person, will say it's like physics or maths, general studies. Mm. Yeah, and then the next hardest would be like chemistry. Biology people often do when they're doing geography in English. I did. Well, there's a famous quote by um, Rutherford, wasn't there? Um, there's physics and all other sciences is stamp collecting. Yeah, and then he got a Nobel Prize in um, chemistry. Physics. Didn't turn that one down, did he? <laughs> During my PhD, I actually did a lot of uh, imprint lithography, which is basically potato stamping on a nanoscale. Cool. And I actually labelled my folder of samples as my stamp collection. <laughs> I really, I just really like the irony of very it. Good, very good, very good. So, why don't you tell us what you do? What's what kind of research do you do here in uh, Imperial College? Yeah, so I'm a postdoc, um, and I work in a biomedical engineering group, and that basically means, well, lots of different things. So, people in the group do stuff around bones and tissue engineering, so how to make new bits of tissue or mm-hmm. cartilage if you've got say arthritis. People look at things like uh, neurons, uh, you know, how how they interact in the case of certain diseases. My particular thing is that actually I work in a slightly different way. So I come in from a physics background where I was making electronics. So my PhD in my previous research was all about making bendy computer screens and flexible electronics. So that's predominantly through photolithography? I mean, how are you, do, how are you making bendy electronics? Yep, so a mixture, so a kind of traditional way, which is photolithography, which is where you project a design through a stencil, through a mask, mm-hmm. onto, a, onto a surface. Um, I also looked at things like... So I'm it's saying, like a shadow, you shine a light through something, it makes a shadow, and that makes a pattern or something. Yeah, basically, yeah. You, you, take a piece of, you take a piece of silicon or something, you coat it in a, a photographic material, yeah. you shine light through a mask onto it, and where the light strikes... Did you never make a circuit as a kid at school? Um, it's exactly well, I the had same. this thing and it looked like a piece of plastic with lots of tiny little holes in it. No, no, not bread, not breadboard. Metal bits, and then you, you had to like print something out on an acetate and no. then shine light through it. No, you never Steve, did that as a school. You remember that I'm a bit older than you. We probably didn't. <laughs> we don't predate it. electronics, Nick. It was all balanced. <laughs> <in my head. laughs> 
yeah, no, it's photolithography. I have heard of it, and I, I do know a bit about it. But it's you can like make really tiny wires and stuff. Can't Not you? that tiny. That's the problem, right? That's the, that's what was the that? Well, mixture to of most people, it's tiny. It's well, like yeah, that's true. Sorry. So it's the it's the way that you make all computer chips at the moment. So when you've got a processor inside your smartphone or anything that kind of thing, that's been made using that process. And it's basically you shine light through, you use it as a stencil through a mask, and you pattern a certain layer. So that might be a layer of wires, and then you do it again and pattern another layer and pattern another layer. And you build up this kind of sandwich that makes up your electrical circuit. Oh, that's cool. Um, that's the kind of traditional way of doing it. Also do things like inkjet printing. So yeah. exactly like your inkjet printer on in the office, uh, let's put some metal ink in it rather than uh, some black, red, or blue ink or whatever in it. Uh, and print out a circuit directly onto something because that was a bit of work I did. And what I'm doing now is taking those kind of uh, uh, what I put on my CV as skills um, and applying them to biological problems. And so one of the things we do, particularly in the group, is we make what are called nano needles. So it's basically a tiny bed of nails upon which you can put cells. Well, they're made of. So, so is, that like, is that like the bed of nails in Octopussy when um, Roger Moore punches someone and he falls onto it? Like, oh, it's a bed of nails, isn't it? <laughs> and he dies. So it's the same principle. It just looks like a bed of nails, but on a really small scale. It looks like a bed of nails. When we look at it in person, it just looks like a little square of solid material. You can't really see anything. But if you look at it under an electron microscope, if you zoom right in, you'll have these little tiny how, needles. How tall are the needles? About five or six microns. And, so and how wide? Are, how, how thick wide is each needle? Uh, the base of them is about 600 nanometers, and they taper up to 50 nanometers, so they are thousands They're of really times smaller. Spike, really yeah. spiky. Really so spiky, that means really small. Like, so that would be like in things that you know you can imagine. So like it's a thousand times smaller than a hair. Thousand so times smaller. Thousand much smaller. Th- a thousand much smaller than a thousandth. No, no, a thousandth roughly. It's about 50 A thousandth of a time smaller. Yeah, and, and actually the, yeah, the problem is then we have to work, or I have to work in a, what's called a clean room, which is basically a huge air-filtered lab. And I wear this big kind of uh, boiler suit and cover my head up and cover all my hair up my beard up and everything because a hair will completely mess the process up. Any one dust, hair? One hair will completely screw Corner. things up. What if you're a quite sheddy person like me? You have to cover up. All of my bits of hair. All of your bits of hair. Every single bit of hair. So what are you using them for? Exactly. Yeah, so a couple of reasons. So you can use them like mini injections for cells. So you can coat them in uh, something you want to get inside the cell. Okay. And then use them to inject through the cell so you can transfect. This is like a kind of intravenous injection, but for a cell. Yeah, so you're basically sticking a tiny needle into a single cell rather than sticking a giant needle that's much bigger than the cells into a region of cells. And why would you need to do that? Like, I can imagine you can inject stuff into your body, you know, like to vaccinate you or to cure you of a disease but why does a cell need to have that so some cells well cells in general i mean uh, here you go i'm a physicist so let me try and talk about <laughs> some biology to a biologist this is why i'm asking you i just want to laugh you're, at you, you're basically pushing me to the limit of where i'm gonna <laughs> it's all right we'll do some calculus in a minute you'll be fine <laughs> i'll put it this way nine months ago i didn't know what a buffer was and if you're a biologist that's a ba- that's a basic thing you need to learn straight away oh dear let's expand then yes, i'll, I'll say something then you can explain to me what it is mm. um so you can use them to transfect uh, cells that are very hard to transfect. So that means basically cells have got a very good defense mechanism for stopping things from getting into them. Sometimes you want to get certain drugs or certain uh, nucleic acids or things inside the cell, in particular the nucleus, then you need to find ways of getting around that. So that's one of the reasons. It helps penetrate the membrane, helps get through the membrane of the cell and gets okay. around that. So like transfection is um, putting DNA in a cell to make it do something different. It's kind of like genetic engineering, right? So if you want to genetic engineer a cell to make something you want, I don't know, it could be anything, something interesting, the cells that are engineered to express insulin to make that, or whatever, 
for, for diabetes. So if you wanted to make a cell stop producing a protein and you couldn't do it using the stuff that people normally use, you're saying that your special beds of nails, you can... Doesn't it like hurt the cells though? So that's a really good question. A yeah, so one of the big <laughs> things you have to do when you test these things is also work out whether your thing is killing the cells. Ah, uh, right. And well, they yeah, generally if it don't. did, that would be a very that could be useful too. Which is just a way of it's a really, really ineffective, hyper resource-intensive well, way well, of killing cells. If you cells. can't have certain cells living in certain areas, then maybe right. So maybe yeah. you'd have like if you didn't want bugs on your hospital table. Exactly. You'd make it of nails, and then there wouldn't be any bacteria on it because. So, so if you touch your bed of nails, do, do you feel anything? No, you can't feel anything. I mean, you wouldn't even. Okay, you're wearing gloves you always in the lab, yeah, um, so you wouldn't even feel anything. It wouldn't even get through the gloves. Just out of interest. But if you touched it and then put it back on the electron microscope, would they all be broken? Um, How have you not depends. done this experiment? We've done it. So we've done it with uh, putting it against a flat surface and pressing it, and so you work out how much force you need to, to, to break them. them yeah. um, but not tried it with a finger. I'd imagine you probably just get some. You probably just take some uh, dead yeah. skin cells off and yeah, have a load of contamination. You're, you're, you're the, the outer layer of. Depend. You said that they were a few five or six three microns. Or four microns. Yeah, so so that wouldn't even go through the first layer of your, you know, the, the, the outside layer of your skin. No, I don't care about the skin. I care about the needles. I wonder if the needles would survive. Are the needles. I imagine mm. they must break, surely, if you. Because they're flimsy, right? Well, they're kind of. That's really interesting. So the properties of the silicon changes quite a lot when you make it really thin. So we often think like a silicon wafer is like a sheet of glass. If you drop it, it'll shatter. If you make it really thin or really small and pointy, everything starts to change, but it's got a lot. The, the mechanical properties change. It's not so wobbly, but it will bend. It will, it will tolerate a greater bending radius, basically. Okay, right. So yeah. it's got some elastic properties. Got some, yeah, and, and you can see where some cells are uh, like to stick really hard to the surface, and right. they'll pull the needles off the surface and break them. Some cells will just sit there quite happily and go, meh, better nails, cool. So I was at a conference the other day. I was chatting to a colleague of mine. Was this another one of the... Uh, was this a Nobel Prize winner? Not a Nobel Prize winner. Oh, you went to a conference and you didn't meet the Nobel Prize Wait, winner. Wait, there was a Nobel Prize winner there. That's like the f one of the... F oh, there was. There was, but oh, this, right, is <laughs> this is a separate anecdote. Pardon? This is a separate anecdote. So no, I was chatting to this guy, a colleague of mine called uh, Philip Tinnefeld, who works in Germany. And Philip's uh, area of research is in DNA origami. Do you know, have you heard of it at all? Um, yeah, it rings a bell. It sounds like one of those things which... People mess around with, but it's got it's got no application. So you, you know things like that's well, okay. All right, here we go. <laughs> um, so uh, so one of the things that's really interesting about DNA is that people have started to when we were first kind of understanding it as a genetic carrier, we were kind of trying to. There were a load of people did a lot of theory trying to understand the kind of electrostatics, or understand the mathematics associated with DNA. Why do these specific base pairs pair? What, you know, like what, how much energy does it require to break I've them? I've seen that, I've seen that in that film. Like, you know, there's a story about Crick and Watson, who yeah. were the people who discovered DNA with Franklin and Wilkins. Yeah. And there's a bit where he's got the two, because they're, they're these base things, so the molecules, the bases line up, and the yeah. hydrogen bonds, they attach. And there's a famous bit where he sort of, has two bits of paper and he arranges them together. And he's and he's like, like, <laughs> they yeah. match up exactly. It's like yeah. plugging uh, something into a wall socket. So that's how I'd imagine. So it. yeah, so so there's quite a lot of theory, and actually it was borrowed a lot from polymer physics. So so all of the the physics that we developed to be able to understand how plastics form. Uh, DNA behaves in a very similar way, and a lot of the principles of DNA are associated with 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 the the physics of, of polymer formation. Anyway, what's really cool about DNA is it turns out that the the, the, the interactions of that are, are determined solely, nearly completely by electrostatics. So, so, so we can actually predict 
how DNA will interact with a much better way than we can say predicting how a protein is. So Nick, you'll know that like if you had take a protein and you don't know what it does, it's very difficult to guess the three-dimensional structure of a protein from its I linear mean, sequence. I, I mean, the proteins fold based on electrostatics as well. That but not wholly. My, my understanding, what other forces do they use? So I mean, so, so DNA just up. works on the Coulomb, Coulomb's law. That's it, basically, right? So, so what so do proteins use? So proteins have other things. So they'll have van der Waals forces. They'll have... Uh, so DNA yeah. doesn't have no van der Waals forces It does, DNA. but they're not dominant. Right, they're dominant exclusively by the chart by the number of hydrogen bonds. Okay, right. So what that means is it makes them very predictable. So it's hydrogen bonding the yeah. DNA. So proteins have some hydrogen bonding. They have uh, they have pi pi stacking. They have tertiary Lots structure. Lots of complex things we don't need to worry about. Exactly. Basically, Basically DNA is simple. You, you can't DNA proteins simple. are complicated. Exactly. So people start messing around with it, doing stuff with it. So one of the things you can do now is this so-called DNA origami. So if you imagine taking, so you know DNA uh, is forms a duplex, forms a double strand. If you imagine taking a single strand of DNA and then imagining kind of a, a big long strand and then short staple, they call them staple strands. What you can do is you can, just because, you, because we know how they interact, you can design them to form two-dimensional and three-dimensional shapes. Right? So you can make cubes and diamonds and smiley faces and, and actually houses and all these kind of things that are all made up because because the, because so how do you make it all right then so you, is this based on the sequence of the uh, the bases exactly yeah so you okay. can actually you can make so people work so you can make a little so you can imagine making a cross so you can make it fall back on each uh, yeah. on itself and actually that's make quite it interesting on. like because th this is the biology right the whole of biology of, of life is based on code yeah right? so the code comes from the nuclear these acids DNA and RNA they're yeah. called nucleic acids and generally when you're a biologist you think about that as being digital information so it's yeah. just a long line of code so it's no shape in, the shape doesn't matter it's just code no. but then what what makes stuff happen in the world like you with your hands that can pick up a mic yeah. or sometimes trim your beard accurately that, that rarely happens those types of functions are based on the shape of you and yeah. the way that you, your shape moves yeah. in time so you move around. And the code of the, the nucleic acids yeah. d determines what the shape is. Yeah. So a long stretch of DNA is made into a shape, which is a pro protein, basically, is the, the shape. Yeah. And ultimately, you're a big lump of protein, so you're just a massive protein. You but, think okay. of of. So like, that's kind of like where a lot of biologists, how they think. So yeah. the idea that um, the, those co the code molecules, the nucleic acids themselves, Can have, have a structure. shape, it's kind of quite. Um, it's, it's interesting. Okay, I mean, but, we know but, we know but, in biology but, that lots of nucleic acids have shapes. Like there were there were things like called transfer RNAs, which bend in a special way to carry things around. Yeah. And it's thought that the world to start with was just based on, on nucleic acids, and they did the shape. But it's just so happened that proteins came along and did it so much better. Yeah. Like all that got superseded, but it's interesting but now you, but you can, that people can now reconstruct sort of. But you can imagine, shape. imagine taking a single strand. So DNA is looking to to duplex, it's looking to form its partner, right? Um, imagine taking a long strand of it that that's kind of just so happens to fold back on itself, and then you took you took a a, a shorter bit of DNA that's half of it's designed to stick to one end, and one of it's designed to stick to the other end of the long strand. So you're like so sequentially it would, it would gluing them together. Exactly. Oh, and as these things, they slowly wiggle together and then they kind of clip in. So it's, like it's basically like an airfix model. Exactly. Right, okay. Exactly. So you, just anyway. go, they, you, so you have to glue, you have to start with the fuselage exactly. before you can put a wing on. Exactly And right. then you have to put a wing on before you would, can it would like be put like, something... It would be like trying to do that if you were like on a... Um, on a, like a vibrating platform because you like wiggle it together and eventually it goes click. I like standing on vibrating platforms. <laughs> 
There used to be one at Alton Towers in this thing called like the Madhouse or something. All right, you enjoyed Have that. Have you ever stood on a very fast fog rating uh, table? Only in my mind. It's quite thrilling. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, get, so you get these you get these cool these cool structures, right? And people have made various different shapes. Um, and I was, you know, sometimes. Oh, I thought that was the end of the story. No, no, sorry. there's more. So and I'm sure, like, you've seen this, Stuart. You know, when people give a talk um, and they'll like show you like a like a scanning electron uh, micrograph of like some structure. I mean, you get that a lot in lithography, right? Where you can tell that if they just go move a little bit out of shot, the rest of it looks terrible. Oh, but they just like pick, they just cherry pick some beautiful area of your chip where your bed of nails or whatever is perfect, and and, and the rest of it's terrible, kind of. Thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You pick the nice nice region and uh, not don't crop it. You can't crop it. That'll be <laughs> is, that, wrong. is that what you, you do, Stuart? It's what not what do. I do. I take. But do you know what? The trouble is. All the good-looking pictures when you do scanning electron microscopy, microscopy are the ones that look rubbish. The rubbish reasons where it's gone wrong are yeah. always the most interesting because you've got chaos happening. Yeah, yeah. Um, so well, anyway. I see just the accidental ones look. But it's, we got, can tell like dust under a microscope. Or your hair. Great. Yeah, yeah, or hair, whatever. You know, all these bits where they kind of like there's a bit of glue or gunk left or on like the surface. Or like an accidental ladybird that's landed <laughs> in there. Because they, all, oh. whenever people think about SCM, it's always like a massive beetle or something, isn't it? It looks freaky. Oh, that'd be, I mean, that's a bad way to go. There wouldn't be a very effective clean room if there was ladybirds in it. And they get killed by I, the I, once, I once went in a clean room which had lizards in it, and I was like, oh, should there be lizards in here? I'm not sure there should be lizards in here. <laughs> doesn't seem very clean. Uh. Um, so anyway, I was asking uh, my colleague, I was saying, uh, you know, like, okay, Beautiful work, really pretty images. But like afterwards, we were having a beer, and I was like, "Let's be honest, right? You know, it, it does it really do like do that?" And he and, he, and most of the time, he was very honest. And he was like, "He's like, I would totally tell you if it wasn't, but it does. It just works every time, right? Because DNA is just governed by these electrostatic interactions." And he said, "I didn't believe this either." So he got his so his so his group to prove it to him. And what they did is they took the long strand DNA and these staple strand DNAs of uh, a tetrahedron. So it made a it made a small uh, fifty nanometer tetrahedron. It's of like DNA, a diamond, little diamond of DNA. And uh, they they dumped it in a cup of tea, the whole like all of the DNA in a normal cup of tea, and then they just. The way, you, the way you make these things is you heat them up and you, in solution, and as they cool down, they slowly wiggle down to their lowest conformational, landsc- uh, the lowest conformational state, which is the, 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 why the, the they, shape. Why did they put it in a cup of tea? And then they purified it from the tea, and then they did an SEM of the DNA nanostructures so from even the though tea it'd gone to into prove. A, even to though it had gone it into a cup of tea, it's still it's that, that kind of... The word that I'm going to use is robust. Exactly. Yeah. Mm. So it's one of those examples of really kind of interesting thing where it's, it actually really does work. You Look know, and it. it's not like one of those things that one in a million times it works. And right. I'm going to go that. and have a go at that. Should we go and have a go now? Yeah. <laughs> what do you know about clay, Stuart? Um, you can make stuff from it. I mean, you used to do it at school, like the little models, and it would dry in the air. And Yeah. Like, where does it come from? I mean... I don't really know. Like it comes out the ground, right? You can dig yeah. out the ground. It's kind of isn't it? F- isn't it flakes of material that kind of slide over each other with a yeah. water layer yeah. in between? It's kind of I don't know. You're the chemist, if you'd know what it is. Cle- uh, they're normally What's silicates, clay? aren't they? Yeah. What's a silicate? I should know this. <laughs> what, <laughs> what gives it its properties? What gives clay its properties? Mm. Um, it's got very. They normally got very amorphous uh, structure, so they have very high surface area, so things stick to them very they're well. Off, yeah, exactly. So they're kind of like. I, I bring this up because this week we had some visitors from a big company that makes clay. When you say clay here, Nick, do you mean like like modelling clay that I could make a little picture well, that's of your the face thing. out of it? That's why I was asking Stuart what he uh, thought right. about it. Because okay. when I, when someone says clay to me, I'm like, it's mud. Yeah. <laughs> it's dirty mud out the ground that kind of you make a pot out of and you put it in a kiln 
and then you end up with a really crap pot that your mother keeps for like 30 years. <laughs> and you <laughs> see it every time you go home and you weep. <laughs> let it go, Nick. Let it go. Yeah. Anyway, so, no, but clay, it's, it's being used in our labs by a colleague of mine for science, sciencey reasons. So uh, when you say clay, because I had this recently with the word resin, I was talking right. about, is there, does clay have a special science meaning or are we talking literally about clay out of like mud out of the ground oh you know you're putting me on the spot because i couldn't give you an absolutely accurate definition of it but clay is usually a silicate material which forms a colloid in water and generally it's particulate so you've got lots of particles and they're in water or you can dry it and you'll have sort of powdered clay but it's very very fine particles you know in the order of um i don't know a millionth of a meter or a thousandth of a meter in size that sort of size and they all sort of they can sort of arrange each other and they can form gels sometimes so things that feel like gels viscous materials or they can form hard things depending on the arrangement and you can get lots of kind of like quite um elaborate arrangements of them as they sort of order them they sort of self-order themselves based on the way that they've got um electrical charge on them so this company, they, they usually make clay for... Do you know what stuff that you might have come across got clay in it? Uh, washing powder. Uh, I think so, yeah. I think yeah. some washing powders, not all of Zeolites, them. Zeolites. So yeah. yeah, that's clay, true. Clay pots. <laughs> yeah, my mum's clay pot that yeah. I made for her when yeah. I was 11. Pencil, um, pencil's got clay in or something. Pencil's got I'm not sure about pencils. with a graphite or something, isn't it? Like uh, a, to I make it slipperier. It possibly, yeah. I mean, clays are used in like they're, they're used in paints, mm. so they're used as thinning agents. They've also got th they can have this property of thick thixotropy. Have you heard of thixotropy? It's basically sheer thinning. So you start off with something that's quite stiff, like paint. If you get paint out of the shed, yeah, it's quite hard. And you stir it, and it becomes it liquefies. Yeah. So clays have that property as well, but they use it. It's used in in car paints. So uh, spray on metallic paints got right. clay in it. They're used in all kinds of um, Things, do, they, toothpaste. Do, they, do they make them or do they just dig them out of the ground you can get so the synthetic clays yeah. and there are also clays which are they, they have mines so this company actually owns mines they dig it out of the ground but they're interested in biology because proteins and things because they're so charged proteins and things stick to them right so for that reason we've been working with a company to try and use it to deliver things to skin wounds clays have been used since antiquity so you can find like um, sort of fossilised evidence that people were, were working with clay. So it's, like, it's like an old school bandage. Pretty much, yeah. yeah. And, and there's examples of animals using clay in the, in the wild as well, eating it after they eat something toxic. So Because they, they're so, the word sorbative, they're like a sponge-like yeah. thing, so they suck up toxins, and animals know to eat them after they've, um, what, what after they've ingested. What animals? I can't remember. There was these, there's some kind of like rodent <laughs> from South America. I saw it on the <laughs> telly. <laughs> Your that, no, 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 but th that particular part of it is, is um, yeah. yeah, yeah, it definitely is something that people have observed. But also, because they're sorbative, you can stick proteins to them. So you can mix them with a protein and you can, use, you can deliver that. And because they hold onto the protein so well, or the molecules so well, it'll hold it in place in a particular site in the body. Right. So it controls how quickly something is released in a certain area. So we've been doing this project for a while now where it's very, very controlled study. Yeah. Right. We take these highly, um, you know, um, technical synthetic clays that are made from it's very pure clays, autoclave, very precise addition of different reagents to the clays, and we look at the way that it affects wound healing, right, in a very controlled scientific way in the lab. 
Okay. And these experiments are usually done on um, experimental mice because that's often the way in which um, new medicines are tested. So um, it's a very important part of trying to work out whether something works medicinally. So we've been wor- my student was working on the, in this in the lab for a long period of time. Anyways, in the lab, he's been doing this for two years, very, very controlled. One day, he looks over, and one of the animal technicians mm. is rubbing this green matter onto mice that have been fighting. Because often, if you keep mice in cages, they can fight each other, yeah. and they can cause small scratches on the skin. So they get cared for. There's the animal technicians who look after them. Smearing on this green stuff. And that, so Dan, my student, was like, well, what are you... Um, so so, 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 so your, your student's carefully, <laughs> he's been carefully doing this adding oh, yeah, small amounts of, yeah, of, of clay. To try and work out whether it works. And then he looks over and someone's just smearing dip, green dip in his mouth yeah, in some grease. Smearing this green stuff on the <laughs> So Dan's like, just gets chatting, oh, what are you doing there? What are you doing there? He said, yeah. oh, this stuff's amazing. It's clay. It's clay. Oh it's clay face mask. So it turns out that in uh, in in animal laboratories, yeah. people are using clay willy nilly to make wounds heal better, and they have and been doing for years. And they just never spoken to the it's academics. Not pub- there's nothing published. That's there's nuts. no published literature. It's not used clinically wow. at all. But this is happening on a kind of. It's, it's really weird you say that because so my background was in printing, so inkjet printing, all these kind of things. Mm. And we obviously printing's been around for a while. They've been doing printing for a long time. And you find that so much stuff that we thought we discovered or thought we'd come across. And then, no, no, printers have been doing it for years. Yeah. It's not, I don't call it science. They don't call it, but they're doing exactly the same things. Yeah. Like the ways you can check whether a certain ink will stick to a surface. You know, it depends a lot on the surface chemistry. Mm. Um, and so, you know, we do certain tests where we very carefully drop water. So um, contact angle measurements, mm-hmm. you'll drop liquids onto a surface, measure the, the angle, the bead forms, and do these kind of things. If you're a printer, you just have a pen that's got a certain you know, solvent or a certain thing, and you just run it across the surface. Really if it sticks. draws on the surface, you know it's working. <laughs> <laughs> so we're wasting our time, right? Should we go to the pub? <laughs> yeah, let's go. Yeah. Transplanting! 